Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Heads up, people in the Boston area, we're doing a live taping of this show on September 7th at the Armory Theater. That's a Thursday. Can't tell you who the guest is, but I suspect you will very much enjoy the conversation. We'll put a link to purchase tickets in the show notes. Okay, now to today's episode. I am a dedicated non-combatant in the diet wars. I have learned to keep my mouth shut on these issues the hard way. Over the years, I have adopted plenty of food religions, veganism, low-carb, to name just two. I've tracked my calories obsessively, the whole nine. Uh, A few years ago, as many of you know, I made a decision right here on this show, actually in the middle of an interview, to ditch all of that and adopt what has sometimes been called the anti-diet. I did this while interviewing a very persuasive person named Evelyn Triboli. We'll put a link to that episode in the show notes if you want to hear it. Evelyn is one of the co-founders of Intuitive Eating, The theory of intuitive eating is basically that you should eat what you want when you want it with two key guidelines. First, you should listen to your body for cues as to when you're hungry or full. And second, you should definitely have a basic grasp of what is healthy and what is not healthy. Intuitive eating folks call this gentle nutrition. As I said, though, I am a non-combatant. I'm not here to tell you what or how to eat. Uh, You can do intuitive eating if you want. You can uh, skip bread and cookies and strive for ketosis if you want, whatever, God bless. But for me... This whole intuitive eating thing just makes intuitive sense. The data suggests that most of the time, and for most of us, diets don't work. Going on a diet can actually be a predictor of future weight gain. Worse, uh, following what other people tell you you should do about your food and how you should look, et cetera, et cetera, can warp your relationship to food and to your own body. But one of the tricky things about adopting this whole intuitive eating philosophy is that the gentle nutrition part can seem a little vague. If you want to opt out of uh, what many people call diet culture, then uh, exactly what should you eat? My guest today is endeavoring to answer this question, to uh, be a little cute about it, to put some meat on the bone. Rachel Hartley is a certified intuitive eating counselor and the author of a book called Gentle Nutrition, A Non-Diet Approach to Healthy Eating. In this conversation, we talked about the basics of intuitive eating, her thoughts on whether or not we should weigh ourselves, whether adopting intuitive eating means living with your face in a cookie jar forever, how her work has influenced her own body image, the eight guidelines of gentle nutrition, her provocative contention that the healthiest choice isn't always the most nutritious choice, her take on some of the critiques of intuitive eating, and her take on the trendy new weight loss drugs uh, like Ozempic. This, I should say, is the sixth and final episode of our series which we have called Get Fit Sanely. If you missed the earlier installments, go check them out. We covered longevity, exercise, and the impact of food on your mental health. Hit me up if you've got a moment on Twitter or on 10percent.com with some feedback. This is really, I think, probably the most ambitious series we've ever done, and I and we would love to know how it landed. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. 
Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The good folks from Tidy Care Alert sent us some kitty litter in the mail. That's not normally uh, the kind of thing you want to get in the mail. But uh, when you have four cats, it's actually a very exciting development. So we've been using Tidy Care Alert and our cats seem to be very happy. They're pooping away very happily. Uh, Tidy Care Alert has long lasting ammonia control. So your house won't smell like you have cats. It's low dust and lightweight, and it's uh, from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one cat or you're a crazy person like me and my wife and our son, and you have four cats, they make it easy to track. Tidy Care Alert. Rachel Hartley, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to be chatting with you today. <laughs> Likewise. I'd love to just get some background on you. How did you get interested in this non-diet or anti-diet approach? Right. Yes, because it certainly is different than the traditional dietetics model that is all about calories and portion and more rigid control. I think a lot of it actually has to do with my upbringing around food. I considered myself someone who was really privileged with food growing up and being surrounded by lots of different cuisines. I had parents who were kind of foodies before, you know, foodies was an actual term that people were using. So I always had this kind of groundwork of understanding that food was a lot more than fuel. 
Of course, when I became a dietitian, you are taught a very, very different model of relating to food. It is so much more about control. And I think that created a lot of confusion for me as a dietitian, trying to square you know, my upbringing with food and how I had seen different people relate to food, as well as just like my schooling background in psychology. It, things really didn't fit for me. And so I, I wish I could say that there was some you know, single aha moment where I was like, aha, like, you know, intuitive eating, this is the thing. But really, it was this very slow, messy process. I was working as an outpatient dietitian in a large medical center and counseling clients on, you know, whether it was diabetes management or the consults that I would get for weight loss. And I knew that I had these interpersonal skills with clients. Like I felt really good about the work that I was doing with them. I always remember we had this patient satisfaction survey and I was ranked like, you know, 90% of people ranked your scores as excellent. And I was so excited at first. I was like, wow, what a great, you know, feeling to have. And then maybe a day later, I was thinking to myself, well, why do I feel so ineffective at my work? Why do I feel like I'm not really actually helping people by teaching them things like clean eating and portion control? So over time, I think first I learned a little bit about mindful eating and became interested in that. Of course, I read Evelyn Trivoli and Elise Rush, their um, book, Intuitive Eating, and that was like a huge moment for me and learning and growing. I still didn't necessarily know how to put that information into action with my clients, but it was definitely this slow process of learning and gradually integrating it with the uh, clients I was working with. So you felt off because you'd been raised to love food and now you were helping other people manage food as opposed to enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. People would come in and they would just feel so much more stressed about the way they were feeding themselves. And I would see the sense of shame that people were experiencing if they were, you know, struggling with eating behaviors or maybe they were changing the way they were eating but not losing weight or they ate something they deemed as bad. Just part of this traditional dietetics paradigm that is really shame-inducing. Hmm. Many people listening to this may be familiar with intuitive eating, but there are probably a lot of people who are hearing about it for the first time. You mentioned Evelyn Triboli. I probably will have said this in the introduction, but I work with her personally. She's been a huge influence for me. Can you just give a basic description of what intuitive eating or what is sometimes referred to as the non-diet or anti-diet is all about? Right. Yes, Absolutely. It is a paradigm for learning how to feed yourself where the focus is on well-being rather than weight loss. And when we say well-being, we're talking about not just physical health, but your mental health as well. You know, it's something that is a tool for just building a healthier relationship with food and learning to relate with food in a way that feels good. I sometimes describe it as instead of getting super persnickety about what you're eating and when, just sort of eating what you want, when you want it, with the caveats that you should learn how to listen to your body about when you're hungry and when you're full, and that you should have a background, ambient understanding of what healthy nutrition looks like without getting obsessed with every little detail of the healthy nutrition. I think that's a great definition, yep. And I wish it was as simple in practice as 
eat what you want when you want. Yes, intuitive eating is about eating what you want when you want with this connection to your body, with this sense of embodiment and awareness of how food makes you feel. And I really want to name that that is so much harder to do in practice when you are in a space of really feeling negative in your body. If you are someone who is in a bigger body and getting a lot of these external societal pressures about how you should be eating. But yeah, it really is you having autonomy over your own food decisions and you having autonomy over what is your definition of health? What does health mean to you? It's not pushing a right or wrong way of eating. It's creating this space that allows for you to figure out a way of feeding yourself that you feel good about. I completely agree that it's, you could put it in a way as I did that sounds reasonably simple, but there are a lot of devils in the many, many details. And I've been working with Evelyn Triboli for several years, and it is still quite difficult. I mean, for me, at least, I'm trying to undo decades of conditioning, maybe lifetimes of conditioning, whatever's handed down to me through my genes, uh, about my attitude, about my body, other people's bodies, how much I should eat, what I should eat, when. So it's not easy. And yet it is liberating because I've spent so much of my life subscribed dogmatically to some sort of food religion that took me out of the moment and also set me up for feelings of failure all, all the time. Right. Absolutely. And I love what you say about how the way that you were brought up around food, how it took you out of the moment. You know, oftentimes when we think about health, we're really focused on the physical. And what you're describing there of that lack of presence that happened when you were subscribed to diet culture, you know, that's something that has a, a huge impact on your well-being and, you know, the well-being of your family and your friends and the people who are around you. You know, our ability to be present in our life and to be connected to the people around us and to be connected with our environment and our community, that's part of health too. And it's part of nutrition. It's part of, you know, how we feed ourselves. We connect with other people over food. That's how humans evolved. So I just, I really appreciate you adding that point there. Yeah, I think there was a key moment for me when I was interviewing Evelyn Triboli for the first time on this podcast. And she just got me thinking about how just that morning I had been eating some avocado toast and feeling guilty about the fact that white bread is allegedly sinful and realizing, oh, yeah, but I was in that moment not tasting my food and not connecting with my wife and child who were in the room with me. What a waste of good avocados. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and precious time. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think to me, you can look at this just as a like super tactically through the lens of what you eat, or you can look at it through the much broader lens of the how you're living and the quality of your life. Right. Looking at it from a sense of well-being and how how is food, how is my relationship with food either supporting my well-being or chipping away at my well-being? So let's talk about what, at some point, we're going to outrun through some of the critiques of intuitive eating, but let's learn more about what it actually entails. Your book is called Gentle Nutrition. What do you mean by that? Yeah, gentle nutrition. So I wrote my book on the last principle of intuitive eating, which is honoring your health with gentle nutrition. It's nutrition. It's all evidence-based nutrition, but it's focused on using that nutrition knowledge to support your well-being rather than manipulate or control your body size. So I think of it as having a few different points or maybe a few different 
places where it converges from diet culture and diet mentality. One is that it is about your self-care rather than self-control. So we are approaching gentle nutrition from a place of not controlling food or controlling our body, but caring for our body and supporting its functions and its health and our well-being. It's flexible rather than rigid. So diets oftentimes come with these really rigid rules about what to eat, what not to eat. Gentle nutrition is something that accounts for the fact that life is going to happen. I have huge renovations going on in my house right now, and I don't have access to a kitchen. So gentle nutrition for me is going to look much different than when I actually have a kitchen with a stove and like not a house that's covered in dust and plastic and all of that. Gentle nutrition is individual. We all have our own unique individual nutrition needs and our own relationship with food, which has an impact on our ability to engage with nutrition. So, you know, someone who is older versus someone who is younger, someone who is an athlete versus someone who is, you know, maybe just kind of moving more lightly someone who has a health condition versus someone who doesn't have a diagnosed health condition. Gentle nutrition, it can adapt to all those really individualized needs that people have. You know, other points with gentle nutrition, it is something that looks at the big picture. So instead of hyper-focusing on each individual meal, each individual snack, or on specific foods, Gentle nutrition is something that zooms out and looks at our patterns of eating over time and helps us kind of get away from this hyper-focus on every single bite of food that we put in our mouth. I know um, Evelyn often says, you know, one meal is not going to make or break your health. And that is so true. And yet the way that diets and food and nutrition is traditionally taught is with this emphasis on every single meal has to be perfectly balanced and I have to eat the right foods and I have to always have healthy foods or I can only have 20% unhealthy foods and 80% healthy foods, all these silly rules that take us away from evaluating the big picture of how we're feeding ourselves. And, you know, lastly, I often say that gentle nutrition is about positive nutrition rather than subtracting. So we're focusing in on adding foods in rather than taking foods out of our eating pattern. Let me ask some of the questions that a lot of people ask when they're confronted with this pretty radical idea. One question is you talked about how much you weigh. Are you saying we should never weigh ourselves? I don't recommend people weigh themselves. I'm not here to say that you should never. Each person out there is individual, but the number on the scale, you know, what kind of information is it giving you? Is it actually giving you information that's helpful for you figuring out how to feed yourself in a way that feels good? The clients that I work with in my practice, oftentimes what happens is they hop on the scale and they see the number is either up or it's down. And it has an impact on how they choose to feed themselves for the day. If the number is up, they might say, oh my gosh, well, screw it. Like my weight's up. I feel crappy about it. So, you know, F it, I'll start all over Monday. Or if it's down, you know, that might reinforce restrictive eating behaviors. Or conversely, if it's down, they might feel like, gosh, I've 
earned this specific food instead of getting connected to their body. When we weigh ourselves, it's something that takes us away from our own embodiment and our own connection with our body and its wisdom. I always veer away from giving these very like specific, no, you should never do this. But I would have a lot of concerns about someone weighing (laughs) themselves. But is there no connection between the number on the scale and your health? Mm. There's much less of a connection between the scale and our health than we've been taught. Traditional healthcare teaches us that food and fitness and our weight are sort of the end-all, be-all of health. And yeah, our weight can have an impact on health, but I think in a very different way than most people recognize. You know, when we look at research on weight science, on the relationship between weight and health, we actually see things like weight stigma and weight cycling that have a much greater impact than one's, you know, just their static number on the scale. So for example, I said weight cycling, most people are familiar with yo-yo dieting and the up and down that happens in our body when we're going on a diet, going off a diet, you know, losing weight, regaining weight. Well, that's a lot for your body to have to go through to go from oxygenating and nourishing and moving a body that's bigger to smaller to bigger to smaller and back again. We know that that puts a lot of metabolic stress on the body. So yeah, weight cycling is something that accounts. Actually, there's some research that suggests that that might even be the vast majority of the difference in correlations we see in health among people in, um, air quoting, normal BMIs and higher BMIs. The other thing I mentioned was weight stigma. If someone is existing in a larger body, they're getting constant messages from society that their body is not okay. It's a stressful thing to navigate the world in a bigger body. And what is the impact on one's health? That's Again, it's not to say that even if we eliminate weight stigma, even if we eliminate weight cycling, that there is zero relationship between weight and health. You know, if I had a magic wand and could just magically wave someone into a smaller body, it is certainly within that realm of possibility that it could have a positive impact on their health, but we don't have a magic wand someone losing weight that involves them dieting, it involves them taking medications, it involves them having a surgery, all these things that are not health-neutral behaviors. So is it your view that diets flat out do not work? Yeah, that's really what the research shows us, that other than a very, very small percentage of people, and studies vary, but it looks like somewhere between, you know, 3 and 10-ish percent, and then we could have a whole other conversation about that 3 to 10-ish percent who lose weight and keep it off for a long time of like, how many of them are struggling with disordered eating or an eating um, disorder? But yeah, the, the research shows again and again that they're really isn't one single way of someone losing a significant amount of weight and keeping it off permanently. And then the final question I just want to get out there because uh, I've talked about this with everybody who's come on who's a proponent of intuitive eating. But again, for the newbies here, I suspect people have been thinking all along and waiting for me to ask, if you tell me I can eat whatever I want whenever I want, I will live with my face in a cookie jar forever. 
Yes, that is how people often feel. And I have heard that fear again and again and again. And I have seen that fear dispelled again and again and again um, in my practice. So that might happen for a short period of time. There is a thing called the honeymoon phase that many people go through when they're loosening up restrictions. You think about it, if you haven't had a lot of experiences with, I don't know, like Oreos or something, you know, of course, you're relearning how to engage with Oreos in a way that feels good. And that's probably going to involve some um, face plant into Oreo situations. So yeah, that is a real thing that happens. And it can feel so scary when someone is new to intuitive eating. If possible, I always encourage like working with somebody. Of course, that's a really privileged thing to be able to um, have someone who you can work with one-on-one or at the very least having a Facebook group or somebody else where you can chat through these things and normalize that experience of the honeymoon period. But what we see again and again is that it really is the restriction that's fueling the face plant into the Oreos behaviors. So it's not the Oreos itself. It's the fact that we've been deprived of them. And for me personally, cheese is like my absolute favorite food. Like I love like fancy cheese plate. There's always that joke about like, you know, are you the bread person or the cheese person? I am the cheese person. That is my favorite. And if for some reason, I don't know, like, there was a plague that infected cows and we're not going to have any cheese anymore. I would be running to my nearest grocery store, just like loading up on all the wheels of brie and just, you know, going to town on it. It's that restriction. It's that fear of not having it in the future that leads to behaviors that feel very out of control with food. So yes, that fear is valid and You probably will have some instances where you feel kind of out of control around food at first, and it subsides over time. As you're getting more practice eating those previously off-limits foods, and as you're chipping away at that emotional restriction, that fear of, you know, this food is bad or this food is going to cause some sort of catastrophic health effect, as that food is becoming a bit more normalized, your behaviors with that food are going to feel much more comfortable too. Just speaking for myself, I can't remember if it's been three or four years that I've been working with Evelyn on intuitive eating, but I definitely went through that honeymoon phase, which is like, I think not probably the right way to describe it because it doesn't feel like a honeymoon. It feels like a disaster. (laughs) And so I was complete. I had to like completely gorge and then go crying to Evelyn about how I'm totally out of control. And she was like, no, 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 you're just working through giving yourself permission to do this. And once you feel genuinely in your bones that you can have sugar anytime you want it, you won't feel crazy about it. But you're like still the kid whose parents didn't let him eat dessert more than like once a week and you're rebelling. And that makes a lot of sense. I would say many years later, I have a very different relationship to sugar now. And I can still have days where if I'm tired or I am not mindful. Just the other day, there was a bunch of ice cream sundaes on the table and I was just mindlessly eating it and eating it and eating it. I felt like shit. But I would say that happens way less frequently than it used to. And now I am much more likely to view a day like that as a data point rather than an abject failure and a trip down into the toilet vortex. It's like, oh yeah, okay, I figured out that if I'm not paying attention, even if I'm well-slept and not super stressed, if I'm not paying attention, 
sugar is super addictive and I can, you know, get dysregulated. Anyway, I said a lot there. Does that any of that land for you? Yes. No, I appreciate you sharing that example because I think people think of intuitive eating they bring a lot of diet mentality into intuitive eating. It's almost like I'm doing it or I'm not doing it. Like tomorrow I'm going to be an intuitive eater. And I think what you shared is a wonderful example of how intuitive eating, it's a practice and we're going to have days, even myself as being an intuitive eating counselor, I have days, I have you know meals where I'm not very connected. I'm not eating very intuitively and that's okay. We can get curious about why did that happen? Like what was going on that, you know, we were eating all these ice cream sandwiches to the point of a stomach ache, but you don't have to look at it from a point of shame. I like to talk to my clients a lot about the difference between shame and guilt and how shame is this idea that when we make a mistake or when we do something that doesn't align with our values, it's because there's some fault within us. It's because we're broken. We have some character flaw rather than guilt, which I know might feel a little bit weird to This almost sounds like I'm telling you, you should feel guilty about that. But guilt, you know, sometimes we make a mistake with food. Sometimes we eat in a way that doesn't really correlate with how we want to take care of ourselves and our our values around food and taking care of our body. And okay, maybe we feel a little bit achy about it. Maybe that doesn't feel good. But can we just get curious about what were the factors leading up to it? And, you know, maybe there's something to learn from. Maybe there's information that's helpful for you another day. Or maybe just sometimes we just eat too many ice cream sandwiches and that's part of life. And it doesn't have to be a big deal. Yeah, it's not that deep. Yes. (laughs) The way it's often talked about in meditation circles is the difference between shame and wise remorse. Mm. Shame, I sometimes think of shame as like a kind of a psychic constipation. It keeps you with your head up your ass because shame is all about you telling yourself a story about how bad you are. So you get real stuck in that place. Whereas wise remorse is whatever fuck up you've just made. It's not about you holistically as a person. It's about you made a mistake and maybe you hurt somebody else or you hurt yourself. But can you not get stuck in telling yourself a whole shame story? And so I find that really useful and That helps me when I get, you know, just like I did this past Sunday where I was, my spoon just kept finding its way back into this huge Sunday over and over and over again. And I felt physically and psychologically kind of shitty afterwards. I was able to pull myself out of that spiral much more quickly than I would have in the past. I love that. I have one last big picture question for you about intuitive eating. And then you have these eight guidelines to what you call gentle nutrition that I do want to run through as well. But let me just ask one last question, because I think for me, a big piece of intuitive eating has been to, and I'm not in any way all the way on the other side of this, but uh, is to have different expectations about how my body looks in the mirror. And I'm just curious about how you work with that, because we live in a culture where For guys, it's, you know, on Instagram, your buddies are posting post-workout pictures with well-defined abs and blah, blah, blah. And I find that I'm just constantly taking the voice of the culture into the moment where I look at myself in the mirror after I've gotten out of the shower. And I've gotten better at that, but it's still, like, I'm still wrestling with that. And I'm curious for you, are you, like, just down with however your body looks at, at any given moment, or do you still obsess about that on some level? 
Yeah, about my personal body or? Yeah. I appreciate you asking that. Actually, I think that's an important question because we bring our bodies into this work. You know, I have been doing this work for a long time and I am someone who deeply values that all bodies deserve respect. And I'm someone who sometimes struggles with body image. I found that I know my specific triggers. Like I know for me, when my stomach is bothering me, like that was always an area for me, body image wise, that I was really sensitive and self-conscious about. And so I know when I have an upset stomach, when I have like reflux or something, that oftentimes that physical discomfort will turn into this thought of like, oh, my body is a problem that, you know, where I I feel unhappy with my appearance. I also noticed that there are certainly times where I'm around, kind of like you were talking about looking on Instagram or, you know, just when you're with friends that sometimes when I'm in a social situation where I feel a little maybe out of place or I feel like, I know a little bit of that, um, oh my gosh, those are the popular kids in high school kind of feeling that sometimes I feel a bit uncomfortable or icky in my body. And I feel so grateful that I've gotten to a place where I know that those feelings are going to pass and that I'm not someone who's acting on it. But yeah, I think that's such an important question because people often feel like they can't practice intuitive eating unless they feel like 100% accepting of their body. And that's rarely the case. You know, if someone is 100% accepting of their body, they probably are just naturally a pretty intuitive eater. So really normal to feel uncomfortable in your skin at times or maybe all the time. And I still think that intuitive eating is a paradigm that we can integrate and, and utilize as a tool for helping you build a healthier relationship with food, as something that can help you notice that discomfort and sit with that discomfort and not necessarily have to act in a way that is harmful. Yeah. I've been very influenced by one of the other interviews we've done in this series, in the series we're running about getting fit without losing your mind. Kara Lai, who's a friend of mine and an amazing meditation teacher, I interviewed her recently. We've already posted that. And she talked about instead of body positivity, just like body respect, mm-hmm. you know, can you, can you just be grateful for the fact that this whole system, this network of networks in your body is functioning largely outside of your conscious control? And so, you know, it, you don't have to try to excise all of the culturally ingrained thoughts about how your body should look. It's going to be hard to do that. But can you have a an easier, cooler, more supple relationship to the self-criticism around that and wake up in those moments and revert back to, yeah, maybe I'm having a moment of judgment about how distended my belly is, but I'm glad that all the parts in there are working well and that I'm generally healthy, et cetera, et cetera. So body respect. Yes, yes, I love that. I oftentimes talk to my clients about the difference between body respect and body kindness. And I think of body respect as this very elemental, like your body needs enough food. Like that is part of respecting your body. Your body has its like basic needs, you know, no matter how you feel about your body, no matter how you feel about your appearance, 
your body still deserves adequate food. It still deserves to eat enough to be able to function and to be able to function well. And if we want to take it one step further and treat your body with some kindness, here's how we can integrate some nutrition or some pleasurable movement, just pleasure in general with food. Amen. Coming up, Rachel Hartley talks about the eight guidelines of gentle nutrition and her provocative contention that the healthiest choice is not always the most nutritious choice. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. By my count, there are eight guidelines for gentle nutrition Let's zip through these if you're down. The first one is eat fruits and vegetables, non-controversial. Yeah, pretty non-controversial there. Fruits and vegetables get certainly put up on a pedestal, and I, I don't want to add to that. But yeah, they've got a lot of vitamins, minerals, nutrients, fiber. There is a lot of great reasons to be feeding our body fruits and vegetables, and I think we can do that without crowding out other sources of energy. Guideline number two is eat whole grains and other fiber-rich carb sources. Okay, this is slightly more controversial because we've vilified carbs in some corners of our culture these days. So uh, say more. Yes, yes, yes. It's so funny to see how carbs have become this controversial food and, and grains. It's, it's sort of silly to me when you look around the world and see all the different cultural ways of eating. Carbs are always the basis of different cultural diets. It's such a huge part of how we nourish ourselves for eternity. So it's really wild to see carbs get vilified. But I want to kind of point out with this one that 
Refined grains get a lot of bad press. People talk about white bread or white rice or white pasta as if it's this really damaging thing to eat, as if it will cause harm to your body. But instead, what I like to do is think about how can we just add in some fiber-rich grains? We know from larger studies that people who eat carbs and people who eat whole grains, that this is associated with good health. So how can we integrate it in a way where we're not diminishing pleasure with food? So for me, when I work with clients, that oftentimes looks like finding what are whole grains or other fiber-rich carbohydrates that you really enjoy. So maybe they enjoy potatoes, which are a fiber-rich carbohydrate source. Maybe they enjoy whole grain bread, but they really hate brown rice and they really hate whole grain pasta. So how can we just kind of work with what you like and integrate some whole grains rather than doing 100% whole grains? Because that can oftentimes lead to digestive issues for all that you hear about fiber and whole grains and digestion. Like there is such thing as too much fiber. And so having that nice mix of some refined grains and some whole grains is beneficial. But just to be clear, we can feel okay about refined grains, so like white bread and fresh-made pasta and all that stuff? Yeah, they are not poison. Uh, It's interesting when... So I hear a lot from clients about how these foods might impact their blood sugar. And certainly if you look at, I know, for example, someone eating white bread and then a clone of that person eating whole grain bread, I don't know, or brown rice and white rice, you do see a slight difference in the glycemic effect, meaning how that food affects their blood sugar. It's not a huge difference, but there is a slight difference. But when you're eating these foods as part of a meal, so when you're having a sandwich that has a whole grain bread or when you're having white rice with chicken or, you know, fish or beef or whatever protein source and having some vegetables with it. When you're getting that mix of fat and protein and carbohydrates, there's not a huge difference in how it impacts your blood sugar levels. What about French fries? French fries, uh, delicious. You know, actually, I use French fries as an example of how we vilify certain foods in these ways that don't really make a lot of sense when you kind of dive into the details. So you think about a French fry, it's potatoes, it's oil, but this is a bad food. We shouldn't be eating French fries. But then you think about roasted potatoes. That's this you know healthy food and virtuous food. But at the end of the day, it's also potatoes and oil. So when our body, when we eat French fries or if we have roasted potatoes, like the chemical compounds is that your body breaks that down and digests it and absorbs the nutrients. It's really not all that different. Like, is there a slight difference in fat content? Sure. But it's really not that different because fried foods, the process of frying it actually creates kind of a seal on the outside that you're not getting into as much oil as you might think. That's kind of a fun example I love to share. Third guideline is don't fear fats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of French fries, yes, fats are satisfying. They're satiating. There is a purpose for fats. So when I went to school, we were just kind of coming out of that low-fat craze and getting into the whole, you know, Adkins kind of diet. But there's still such a hangover about fats. I think some of it actually has to do with the name itself. We associate dietary fat with adipose tissue. But fat, it's just one of our three macronutrients. And 
We need it. It plays important functions in our body. It gets integrated into our brain. Our brain is actually, oh my goodness, I'm going to butcher the number, but I want to say it's like 75% fat or something like that. But it's a lot of fat in our, our head, basically. And it also plays roles in creating hormones. It's helpful for digestion. So we really, it's a food group that's essential, but gets vilified. I find from an intuitive eating standpoint too, when people overlook fat as part of their meals, they end up leaving a meal feeling not very satiated, not very satisfied. They end up feeling hungry soon after eating and either binging later or eating in a way that feels chaotic and out of control. So I encourage people to cook with fat, to add fat to their meals, to think of it as not just a sort of thing to prevent food from sticking to your pan, but something that's like a flavoring ingredient too. Where are you on butter? Oh, I love it. Um, yes, I'm, I'm team butter for sure. It has a flavor that you just can't replicate from other foods. Butter gets a bad rep because of saturated fats and its effect on our cholesterol levels, but it's a great example of how there's a kernel of nutrition truth that gets blown up and exaggerated to the point where it's no longer helpful for us. So with butter, for example, there are some people out there who can eat larger quantities of saturated fat and doesn't really have a big impact on their cholesterol levels. You know, yes, there is this small number of people who are more sensitive to dietary cholesterol, but it's not something we have to fear and get overly anxious about. As long as we're using lots of other types of fats too, you know, people who cook with butter, they usually cook with things like olive oil or maybe peanut oil. Um, maybe they're using, I don't know, avocado oil. Like we can get some variety in rather than demonizing a specific food. But you don't want to be eating sticks of butter every day. There has to be some moderation here, I would imagine. Sure. And that's where consciousness comes in rather than uh, restriction. I would imagine if someone is actually eating sticks of butter, there might be some other things going on there. So <laughs> I don't know that it's necessarily a behavior that people would engage in without, I don't know, some degree of restriction going on that's influencing those behaviors. So yeah, we can be conscious about things. For example, high cholesterol runs in my family. I have high cholesterol. I've always had high cholesterol, even when I was a more rigid eater. And so because of that, I do try to be a little bit more conscious about butter or saturated fats, but we can do that in a way where we're not restricting ourselves. I often ask people to think about, does that change make you feel deprived or does it make you feel restricted? And if so, then maybe that's not necessarily the healthiest choice for you. Maybe that's not something that's actually improving your well-being. But, you know, if you feel like, hey, I can try to cut back a little bit on butter, maybe cook with more olive oil, and it feels like a very chill, easy change to make, great. You have a pretty radical quote here, the healthiest choice is not always the most nutritious choice. Yes, I like to distinguish between health and nutrition. So we label foods as healthy or not healthy. But to me, health is something that's very different than nutrition. Health is something that incorporates our psychological well-being, our 
social connection with people, our sort of financial situation and socioeconomic. So health has to, is much more nuanced than how much vitamin C and fiber is in a certain food. So yes, nutrition is a piece of whether a food might be a healthier choice for you, but it's not necessarily the end-all be-all. So for example, I signed up, I'm not exactly sure why I did this, but with some friends, they talked me into running a half marathon and we're going to see how that one goes. But I think about when I work with runners and what do they do before a race? They take that gel pack. What is that gel, that energy gel pack? It's sugar. It's not something that provides their body with a lot of nutrition. It's not necessarily a nutritious food, but it's probably one of the healthiest choices they can make in the moment because it provides their body with that simple source of energy. So again, we can think about nutrition. Intuitive eating doesn't mean that all foods are equal, that you know a brownie is just as nutritious as a salad. That's not the case. But that brownie in certain situations might be the healthier choice for you. And that salad might actually be a less healthy choice. And I think it goes beyond just like, you know, it is a a healthy choice to have sugar before you go on a long run, even though it's not classically nutritious. I think there's a psychological component that I'm hearing to what you're saying, which is if cooking with oil instead of butter feels restrictive is going to set you up for binges down the road, degrade your quality of life, increase your stress, that's likely to have, holistically speaking, some negative health impacts on your whole body. And so, yeah, maybe you ought to think about a different way to approach it rather than straight up restriction. Yes, yes. Even if a food was certifiably unhealthy, is labeling it as such or eliminating it from your diet, does that actually help you engage with it in a healthy way? And I think the research and and my professional experience is no. So the idea of like how nutritious the food is, like we can think about that and that can be something we integrate, information we take in and we use in figuring out how to feed ourselves. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter the nutrition content of a food if eliminating it is something that causes stress, then I don't know that that is the healthiest choice for you. Guideline number four is eat more plants and fewer animals. Yeah, so kind of a broad one. And again, I want to be very clear. I'm noticing myself thinking about the listeners out here who may be hearing these guidelines and feeling a bit maybe tense or feeling a sense of restriction coming up within them or a sense of fear or guilt about their own eating behaviors. So one thing I want to emphasize is that these are guidelines, very, very loose guidelines, just like the principles of intuitive eating are guidelines and not rules. But yes, when we zoom out and look at the big picture of people's eating habits, we know that eating in a more plant-centered way, not necessarily vegan, although there's nothing wrong with that if someone wants to eat vegan and not necessarily vegetarian, again, even though there's nothing wrong with that, but integrating more plants, less animals, that it's beneficial for our overall health for most people. And I would argue to the environment, which is part of health too, (laughs) the health outside of ourselves. Yeah. Just to interject here with some personal Mm -hmm. reflections, I was vegan for about four or five years, and then I was vegetarian for a minute, and then I it all fell down, and now I'm I'm back in omnivore land, although I'm pretty heavy on plants and often don't have any meat or fish until dinner, and some days I don't have any at all. 
And yet prior guests in this series we've been running have argued that like we really do need more protein, especially as we age. And that animal protein, I hope I'm not mangling the advice, but that animal protein is really the easiest way to get it. So what's your take on that advice? Mm, Yes, I think there's benefits to including animal-based protein in our eating. And that doesn't mean that someone shouldn't be a vegan or a vegetarian if that's what they're ethically called for. This is all very individual. There are some people out there where maybe eating a totally plant-centered diet is what feels good for them, and that's wonderful. Other people might find that they really feel best eating more animal proteins and eating a more protein-heavy eating pattern. And again, that's great for them too. But overall, there's benefits to including animal-based protein because like you said, it is probably the easiest way to get protein in. And we do have a little bit higher protein needs as we get older. Of course, with the caveat that most people are really getting more than enough protein in their diet. But this is a great example of how we can take information about nutrition and how do we want to apply it to ourselves. If someone is ethically called to be a vegan, that doesn't mean even if we knew for certain that their body would get some benefits out of including animal proteins, that doesn't mean that that's the choice that they have to make. There's a lot more that goes into our decisions about food. So yeah, I hope that kind of gives a little bit of the nuance there. Yes, this is a friendly place for nuance. Um, (laughs) Guideline number five is have dairy if you enjoy it. Again, another food group that has been really demonized. I often say there's these kernels of truth in nutrition that get so blown out of proportion. And there is the kernel of truth that many cultures just don't eat dairy. It's not part of their traditional eating patterns. It's not necessarily a thing that like you have to have to have. And I'll add to that, like I definitely think there, you know, milk, uh, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s was certainly pushed on you quite a bit from, you know, all the gut milk campaigns. But there are actual benefits to dairy, you know, a wonderful source of protein, calcium, and other bone-building minerals. So you think of potassium and magnesium. It's something that's delicious and tasty and convenient and a simple thing to pack as a snack. So I really love dairy. And I also encourage people to go for a 2% or full-fat version of it. It tastes much, much better, in in my opinion. And it's going to help keep you satiated longer. Next one is be mindful about sweets. Yes, going back to that sort of like consciousness without being obsessive about it. Again, I'm putting myself in the position of the listener. And I think under this principle, and this is something I talk about quite a bit in the book, is that most of the time when people are eating large quantities of sweets, oftentimes it's under the condition of deprivation. We've all kind of heard those rat studies about like the rats who are addicted to sugar. And what I love to share with my clients is that they actually didn't show those addictive behaviors around sugar 
unless they were being deprived of food. So it's this kind of classic uh, study that gets shared about why we should be careful about sugar. You know, you're going to get addicted to it. And, you know, once you start eating it, you're never going to be able to stop. And when we actually look at the studies that were supporting that, the only mice that showed addictive behaviors towards sweets were hungry food-deprived mice. When mice were given free access to food, they didn't actually show those behaviors towards sweets. So I always tell, share with my clients, like if you want to have a healthier relationship with sweets, try baking some cookies, actually allow yourself to eat some sweets. And at the same time, we can have some degree of consciousness. How does it make you feel when you're eating sweets without pairing it with fats and protein? You know, how does it feel when you're going a period of time where, you know, maybe you're eating a larger quantity of sweets? Like, is that what makes you feel good? Maybe it doesn't make a difference in how you feel. Or maybe you're noticing like, yeah, I got to get some produce in here. <laughs> We're going to get to this with the last of the guidelines, which for my money is the the most important. But yeah, I do think it's like, for me, it's been about how do I feel? I had a day uh, this past Saturday before Sunday gate, the ice cream Sunday extravaganza <laughs> that I had the following day where I was with my son all day. We went to a baseball game and we're at a birthday party. I don't think I had anything to eat that day other than dessert. And I felt like garbage, like total garbage, it, 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 the worst. And so I think just tuning into that is useful. And yet, and here's my question, I think there are a lot of people, myself among them, who many nights per week, if not every night, after having had a balanced dinner, I like to have a little dessert. Should I be feeling any guilt about that, given that you've said be mindful of sweets? When I say mindful, that does not mean eliminating sweets. We have plenty of room to be able to eat sweets every day. It's interesting, the studies that look at sugar consumption and health, with the caveat that correlational studies are not that great, but we certainly do see a correlation between health outcomes and sugar intake. But even at that lowest level of sugar intake, where we see the best health, people are still eating sweets every single day. Those are still people who eat sweets. So diet culture has taught us that sweets are to be eaten like once a week or every once in a while, but we can include sugar regularly and that doesn't mean we're harming our health. Our body knows what to do with it. Our body knows like when we digest our desserts, when we digest a snack that has added sugar in it, you know, it goes into our stomach, it gets broken down into, you know, glucose and all the other parts of the food. But once that food enters our gut, once it enters our bloodstream, that glucose from that sweet is the same as glucose from quinoa or oatmeal or, you know, potatoes or whatever other food. So again, it's not something that we have to get obsessive about. Penultimate guideline here, emphasize fresh food. Yeah, there is, again, kernel of truth that fresh foods have lots of nutrients. And at the same time, I love convenience foods. I think they're a wonderful tool for feeding ourselves when we're busy, when we don't have a lot of time, when, like me right now, when you don't have access to a kitchen. There is a purpose for convenience foods. And 
can we incorporate some more fresh foods in? Can we emphasize more fresh foods in our overall eating pattern? So yeah, I I always want to be careful. I know clean eating has sort of put unprocessed foods or whole foods, whatever that means, up on a pedestal. And I think it's important to really look at it as something that has its benefits, something that we can incorporate more of in our overall eating pattern without eliminating processed foods, without demonizing foods that come from a box or come from a can. Because it's a really privileged way to think about food. You think about the time and energy that goes into cooking a meal that's made from all fresh whole ingredients. And a lot of people don't have time for that. They also might not have the money for that. So again, we can highlight the nutrition benefits of a food or food group without demonizing other foods. You have worried aloud on social media that there's been some fear-mongering around chemicals in food. You have this post, this jokey post that says, warning, these chemicals are hidden in your food, such as dihydrogen oxide, aka water, sodium bicarbonate, aka baking soda, and you go on and on. But should we have no concern about some of these unpronounceable ingredients? Yeah, no, I I love that post because chemicals have, it's a scary sounding thing. And oftentimes there are certain additives or ingredients in foods that have a long or unpronounceable name or looks kind of like, ooh, like I wouldn't have that in my kitchen, but they're just regular ingredients. Maybe they're vitamins or minerals that have been added. So yeah, is that to say that we should have zero concern? You know, I'm someone who certainly looks at the food industry with some degree of skepticism. I don't, I'm not someone who puts all of my trust in large companies. And I do think we need to chill out a bit on ingredients without getting too kind of detailed because I think it's where we get into a little bit more individualized stuff. Like, yes, there are certain ingredients or additives that might not be the greatest for certain people, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be eating processed foods or that if we see something that has an ingredient we can't pronounce, that that's automatically bad for us. Coming up, Rachel talks about the final guideline out of the eight guidelines of uh, gentle nutrition. For my money, for whatever it's worth, this final guideline is the most important. We'll also talk about her take on some of the critiques of intuitive eating, and we'll get her to weigh in on those uh, trendy new weight loss drugs, including Ozempic. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home. 
and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable, and uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Final guideline, as I said before, I I think this is, you may agree or disagree, I don't know. To me, this just seems like truly the bottom line, and it may be exactly why you put it on the bottom line. (laughs) Pay attention to how food makes you feel. And we've we've referenced this, you know, like with sugar, I'm like, I like eating sugar. But if I eat too much of it, or if I eat it at the wrong time of day, or if I eat the wrong, you know, a certain type of sugar, uh, certain products, I might feel like shit. And so just listen to that. Yes, yes. Human beings were designed to be flexible with food. There's no one right way of eating. And so I know a sort of general pattern of eating that feels good for me. And it sounds like you've worked on discovering a general kind of pattern or flow to your eating that feels good for you. But that doesn't mean it's going to feel good for another person. And this is where I get admittedly a bit angry and fired up when I see people online saying, hey, it's like my way or the highway. This is the right way to eat. If you're eating different than this way, then you're hurting yourself, you're harming yourself, you're killing yourself, like the fear mongering around that. Because the reality is, if you look around the world and you look at all the different patterns of eating that we have evolved to thrive off of, there's huge differences. Like we can have big differences in our macronutrient composition of our eating. We can eat a large variety of foods or there's some cultures where humans have grown up where they have less of a variety. So to say that there's one right way, I think that's selling false promises. I think it's using fear to sell a program or a product. It's something that makes me angry. How we feel that can be a incredible source of wisdom in feeding ourselves. We can tune in and check in with our body and notice what feels good in a non-judgmental way. Intuitive eating isn't always eating meals that you feel awesome after. Life happens, like your example from the, the Sunday gate. You know, sometimes we eat in ways that don't necessarily feel good. And it doesn't mean we've done catastrophic damage to our body. Our bodies are not these like, you know, delicate little flowers that we have to care for. Our bodies are designed to take some rough and tumble and Admittedly, some people, their bodies can 
tolerate a bit more than other people's bodies, but we still don't need to approach intuitive eating as if every meal we're going to leave the dinner table feeling like, ah, like my digestion is great and I feel incredible and energized and awake because I, I, it's just not realistic. Yeah, every time I worry about beating up my body, I look at Keith Richards. That dude survived like <laughs> high-grade cocaine and crappy heroin for decades. He's still kicking. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'd love to share an analogy that I, I often use. You know, there's the idea, diet culture promotes this idea of treating your body like a temple. And I kind of like to say, okay, let's treat our body like a house. You know, we want to keep up with our general maintenance of our home. Like you don't want to spring a leak and let it go. And, and you know, like a year later have like all sorts of damage going on, some mold forming. We want to take care of our, our house. We want to make sure we're engaging with some amount of upkeep. But also, like, we don't have to have this pristine, perfectly clean architectural digest type home. And so our house, just like our house can survive bad weather or, you know, sometimes like things do go wrong with our house and like we can fix that. You know, we don't have to be so pristine with how we're caring for our body. Okay, so let me ask about some of the critiques we've heard of intuitive eating in the course of this series we had on Dr. Mark Hyman, and he was generally pro-intuitive eating, but he did say, and this just picks up on your point about listening to your body, he was just saying that, like, if your brain has been totally hijacked for years by diet culture and or just terrible nutrition, you know, you've been just living off of uh, fast food because that's the way you were raised, that it's actually, it's going to be very hard to learn to listen to your body and intuitive eating may not work in those cases. What's your rebuttal, if any? Yeah, I'd be curious about what his definition of work means. If work means achieving some sort of way of eating that aligns with his view of what healthy eating should look like, then maybe not. It is true that how we grow up around food influences our taste buds, our taste preferences. And intuitive eating is about figuring out a way of eating that feels good for the individual. So, you know, if he's kind of looking at someone who's, I don't know, grown up on fast food and that's all they've eaten for every single meal, well, Intuitive eating can help support them in figuring out a way of improving their both physical health and mental health without disregarding their taste preferences. So yeah, I, I find that one a little bit hard to square. I'm also just thinking about the people who I've worked with who have felt like they were addicted to sweets or they struggled with binge eating disorder, that perhaps if you looked at their eating pattern, objectively, they were not getting a lot of nutrition in. And still, there was deprivation in there that was fueling those behaviors, which you wouldn't think because if someone is eating at a fast food all the time or whatever, they're eating it, so they're not being deprived. But that emotional restriction around food has a huge impact. You know, it's one thing to allow yourself to eat a food, but if you're telling yourself, okay, I'm bad for doing this, there's something wrong with me, you know, if there's a lot of shame there, it's going to keep them trapped in the same behaviors. So I would also add to that that, you know, what role is deprivation playing in these supposedly, you know, air quote, hijacked uh, eating behaviors? Yeah, I guess I also just kind of wonder what is the alternative? You know, is that someone who 
I don't know, are we throwing just like a rigid way of eating at that person and kind of expecting like if intuitive eating is off limits for them, then what is like within their, their means, within their capabilities? Well, I mean, I don't know. In reading the New York Times article, the New York Times did a big takeout recently on Evelyn Triblet and her partner, Elise Resch, who came up with intuitive eating low these many decades. And it was largely quite complimentary, but there were a few critics in there, and I, you might be able to recapitulate their criticisms better than I can, but if memory serves, the criticism ran along the lines of, like, sometimes actually we really it's a life, a matter of life or death. We really need to put somebody on a restrictive diet because they are morbidly obese. Anyways, does that jibe with your memory of what was said in the article? Yeah, I think that was, yeah, essentially that intuitive eating is fine up until a certain point. But if someone's weight has gotten to a point where it's deemed too high, then we have to do a diet. Then we have to focus on weight loss. And I disagree with that. As always, intuitive eating is an option. So for someone out there who, you know, is in a higher weight body who wants to pursue weight loss, that's fine. I'm all about bodily autonomy. But I have some questions about how is that pursuit? How is that focus on weight over one's psychological health and well-being? Is that actually helping someone improve their overall health and well-being? So I do not see intuitive eating as having a weight limit. I don't see it as something that is only for people who are in smaller bodies. I work with many people whose BMI is in the, I I say the air quote, like morbidly obese range because it's a, a really stigmatizing term. And Actually, as a sidebar, the the phrase morbidly obese was developed by a bariatric surgeon because you're going to sell a lot more bariatric surgery Mm. if it sounds like you Mm. might drop dead at any minute. Mm. But yeah, I think where some of that comes in is people assume intuitive eating is just eating donuts all the time or eating sweets or just eating in a this kind of stereotypically unhealthy way. And it's hard for them to square. How do we use this tool for someone who's struggling with their health? And it's all about like meeting the person where they're at and figuring out like what is supportive for you and taking care of your health. And can we do that without looking at a specific number on the scale as the outcome? So, you know, if someone has legitimate health concerns, whether they're at a high weight or not, we can do that while also utilizing that intuitive eating paradigm. Right. So what has to happen in your view is a rethinking around the relationship to food in your body. And if you're not doing that, if you're just going with gritted teeth, white knuckling restriction, it is unlikely to work in an abiding way. Exactly. Because dieting, it doesn't change one's relationship with food. And I'll say there are plenty of people who have very high BMIs, who eat just in an overall healthy way, who take care, who care about their health and are active. And if you, you know, they go to the doctor, uh, their labs are looking great. So there are plenty of people who are in objectively fat bodies. And I, I use the phrase fat not in a pejorative way, but just as a descriptor. 
they are healthy. They are just objectively healthy. And if someone is struggling with health concerns, what happens when we focus on weight as the way of improving their health? You know, we know that diets don't work long term. There was actually a, a study that looked at tens of thousands of people and the probability of someone in a air quote obese body attaining quote unquote normal weight. I feel like I'm doing a lot of air quotes over here. You know, it was something like one in 8,000 or one in 9,000. I'm, I'm probably butchering the numbers a little bit, but it's extremely, extremely low probability. So how can we just support that person's health without depriving them of food and nutrients? Because the most important part of healthy nutrition is whether someone's getting enough food. Hmm. It's interesting because there has been some mockery around this notion of healthy at any size because you you hear critics say, well, you're just justifying, you know, patently unhealthy weight, even though it is true, as you said, that looking at somebody, even if they're stereotypically, quote unquote, fat, that they actually may be super healthy. But there are critics who say healthy at any size is basically just political correctness brought into nutrition. Mm, yeah. And I think that arises from a really fundamental misunderstanding because health at every size, it's not about assigning one's health. It's not about looking at someone on the street and saying like, oh, you're healthy, oh, you're not, you're sick. It's about giving people the opportunity to pursue health no matter what health means to them. So health can mean different things for different people. And really, frankly, if you kind of look at the world and take into account like mental health conditions, physical health conditions, no one out there, there's very few people who aren't struggling, who, who don't have something that they're struggling with. But yeah, like health at every size, it is creating a world where someone can, you know, focus on things besides changing their body size to improve their well-being. So whether that's engaging with pleasurable movement instead of militant exercise, whether it's helping people get access to healthcare, because unfortunately and infuriatingly, people are denied healthcare because of their weight. People are denied surgeries. They're delayed healthcare. They're told that, hey, why don't you lose weight and in six months come back and then we'll treat your condition. People are denied access to fertility treatments. So health at every size is about creating a world where we are really supporting people in their own individual decisions around their body without forcing weight loss as the solution. Just a quick question as we wind down here, and maybe there's no quick answer, so you can pass if you want, but <laughs> I'd just be curious. Everybody's talking about Ozempic as a weight loss drug, and it's a you know part of a family of drugs that people are taking, and I guess it's reducing their appetite and helping them lose weight. What's your take on that? Mm, yeah, it's wild to see this medication. I mean, it really is everywhere. And I get so many questions from my clients because they have friends and family members who are using it. And I don't want to demonize anyone who chooses to use Ozempic. Again, it's your body, not my body. You do what you want with it, not my personal decision because I'm not living in your body. And I also think there's something really scary about the way that 
this drug is becoming normalized. I'm thinking of the, was it Jimmy Kimmel joke at the beginning of the Oscars and about you know, everyone being on Ozempic and just how quickly this has become part of our cultural conversation. It's interesting when you look at the research around Ozempic, it's being touted sort of similar actually to how weight loss surgeries were first uh, marketed when they came out, but it's being touted as this like the miracle drug and like permanent weight loss and look how much weight people can lose. But when you, well, first of all, when you look at how people like tolerate it, there's a lot of people with some pretty severe side effects from the medication. But two, we see that similar to dieting, there is weight regain over time. There's research that's shown people start to regain the weight they've lost on Ozempic. Uh, I want to say, please don't quote me 100% because I, I, I want to say it was after two years or within two years, not 100% on that one, but Regardless, people do start to regain weight while they're still on it. And of course, when someone stops taking the medication, they regain the weight that they've lost. So I I have a lot of concerns with how it's being used. And actually, and, and specifically with doctors, I found a lot of my clients, their doctors have treated them in some pretty icky ways about taking this medication. Almost like, well, there's no excuse now for your weight. We have Ozempic when they have some very, very real concerns about why they wouldn't want to take the medication. So yeah, it's definitely something that, I guess to summarize, it's something I feel kind of icky about. (laughs) (laughs) Icky is the clinical term. Yes. (laughs) Rachel Hartley, author of Gentle Nutrition, a Non-Diet Approach to Healthy Eating. We'll put a link to that. We'll put links to lots of her stuff in the show notes if you want to learn more. Rachel, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a lovely conversation. Thanks again to Rachel. Thank you as well to you for listening. If you've got a moment, go uh, give us some feedback on this Get Fit Sanely series. Also, rate and review us. That really helps us grow this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davy, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Thanks again to DJ for all of his incredible work on this series. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor, and Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio, and we get our theme song from Nick Thorburn of the great indie rock band Islands. We'll see you right back here on Friday for a bonus from Alexis Santos. It's a guided meditation that will help you deal with self-destructive urges that sometimes come up when we're trying to boot up healthy habits. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, 
Music Field Weekly Party, where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.